Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, more than $600 million has been poured into Atlanta's East Lake neighborhood since 1995. Brett Theodos from the Urban Institute will discuss a new report that reveals how the money and other initiatives have helped the area and its residents and the future. Plus, it's been a busy week at the state capitol. Our WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally join me to recap all the fun legislative action. Those conversations coming up, but we begin with this, and that is the weather from the National Weather Service in Peachtree City. This will be the coldest week so far this winter, coldest weekend so far this winter. A strong cold front will bring what they say are extremely cold temperatures to north and central Georgia tonight and Saturday with temperatures falling to 15 to 30 degrees and northwest winds gustling up to about 30 miles per hour. Wow. And also, they say wind chill values will plummet into the single digits across north Georgia and into the teens across middle Georgia. Make sure you check on your neighbors to make sure they have what they need. In other news, supporters for a city of East Cobb may be smiling today. That's because the state house passed a bill for a May referendum Thursday. But Democratic State Representative Eric Allen of Smyrna is concerned because Cobb County is dealing with not one but four cityhood efforts. All four of these should be put through committee and brought to a vote at the same time. It is extremely chaotic for the county to prepare for the different scenarios and do an impact study. If this passes, if this doesn't, if that one, these two, these two don't. Now, along with East Cobb, there are cityhood efforts for Lost Mountain, Mapleton, and Vinings. In other news, there is a lot of junk piled in the ocean off of Georgia's coast, including the sunken World War II cargo ships and New York City subway cars. How did that happen? It's there on purpose. Molly Samner reports on a recent project to map Georgia's artificial reefs. Most of the ocean floor near Georgia is made up of sand and not much else. By and large, you might think about it as a vast sandy desert. Clark Alexander is a coastal geologist and director of UGA's Skidaway Institute of Oceanography. He says in some spots there are rocky outcrops, and those are places where coral and sponges live, which attract crustaceans and all kinds of fish all the way up the food chain. Oases in the middle of the desert. About 50 years ago, Georgia started creating more of these oases by dumping stuff in the ocean. What we call materials of opportunity, they're things that are donated to us or provided at a very low cost to us. Cameron Brinton is a marine biologist with the Georgia Department of Natural Resources. He says the stuff they dump to make reefs has to be big and heavy enough to stay on the bottom and clean enough to not pollute the environment. So we've got surplus military equipment like uh, M60 battle tanks. There's pieces of old bridges. Concrete culverts. Uh, is is a very popular one because it has a nice cavity for the fish to take shelter in. There's even the propeller and the rudder from the Golden Ray, the cargo ship that wrecked near Brunswick a few years ago. But after 50 years, it wasn't clear exactly where all this stuff was. So the Skidaway Institute recently worked with the Georgia Department of Natural Resources to make a map of it all. It gives divers and anglers more specific locations and makes sure there's enough water covering it all so that it doesn't pose a risk to ships passing over it. Britain says strong storms had caused some things to shift around. And Alexander says the study opened up more questions for him about why Georgia's ocean floor looks the way it does. There's still more to be learned. This stage of the project is done for now, but there are more artificial reefs further offshore that they're hoping to map eventually. Molly Samuel, WABE News. And we should note that does not mean you get to dump your television from 1974 or that lawnmower that's been in the garage for 20 years into... Well, you know, 
Finally, the Atlanta Hawks' Trey Young is slated to be a starter for the 2022 All-Star Game. It's his second time starting in the NBA All-Star Game. He appeared in 2020. The starters were selected by fans, current NBA players, and a media panel. I was not one of them. Young is the only player in the NBA to be ranked top five in the league for both points and assists per game. And well, what we say is that he's got game. And he's the first player in the league's history to both score 55-plus points and have 14 or more assists in a single game. The All-Star Game will be played February 20th in Cleveland. Way to go, Trey. We appreciate you. Represent the Hawks. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. In just a moment, we'll welcome Brett Theodos. He's a senior fellow at the Urban Institute. And we'll discuss a report that analyzes the outcomes after more than $600 million and other initiatives were poured into Atlanta's East Lake neighborhood. And this is all since 1995. But there's a backstory here we wanted to report as well. Now, East Lake, it's been the topic of several news documentaries and reports. The transformation of Atlanta's East Lake neighborhood. So before 1995. And now what happened back then, there was a 650-unit public housing complex called East Lake Meadows. It was located at 380 East Lake Boulevard Southeast. Now, according to archival documents from the Atlanta Housing Authority, there were units that their high rise at East Lake Meadows for the elderly for elderly folks, as they put it, was completed September 17, 1971. So the regular buildings contain 650 units on 58.3 acres. The high rise building for the elderly contained 150 units on nine acres. And we should note that both were part of the low rent housing program. But the housing project, like much of the surrounding area, was plagued by violent crime, drug, turf wars, and poverty. It was called Little Vietnam. I know a lot of you know that. Here's a clip from CNBC journalist Tyler Matheson's feature, Miracle at East Lake. They would shoot and cut and stab and kill each other. That's what they did. By 1995, the crime rate was 18 times the national average. I would never go into East Lake Meadows alone. Shirley Franklin, now Atlanta's mayor, remembers the old East Lake well. How bad was it? Well, the statistics suggested it was just awful, um, that it was completely dysfunctional community. That clip, courtesy of CNBC's Miracle at East Lake and journalist Tyler Matheson. Well, what happened with East Lake after 1995? Here's part of a 2015 report from then WABE reporter LEU. I'd maybe be in jail somewhere also. That's real estate developer Tom Cousins. He's the man behind some of Atlanta's most prominent buildings. And when the city began tearing down public housing in the 90s, he says he wanted to try something different with Eastlake. We're going to focus our money and our time in this one terribly deprived neighborhood and see if we could make a difference. The model was this. Create mixed income housing, but pair it with quality schools and services like job counseling and child care to help existing residents. A nonprofit, the East Lake Foundation, would lead the way. East Lake led cousins and other investors like Warren Buffett to create a nonprofit consulting group called Purpose Built Communities to take the idea national. But the model in Atlanta needed a sustainable revenue stream. A lot of that came from the East Lake Golf Club, which helps fund the foundation's programs. So that's a very abbreviated then and now snapshot of Eastlake. And now to that Urban Institute report, let's bring in Brett Theodos. He's a senior fellow. It's titled Atlanta's Eastlake Initiative, a long-term impact evaluation of a comprehensive community initiative. And we're going to discuss this. Brett, welcome to the program. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much. So good to be with you. 
You know, we tried to give listeners a bit of a backstory about the East Lake neighborhood and that community. I know you were listening. Anything you want to add before we get into the report? The thing I want to emphasize is how unusual this was. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of cities that have neighborhoods uh, and places with public housing. It was often a racialized and racialized effort to segregate black people in particular away from city centers. So that's an urban story that's been true in a lot of cities. Um, And there have been efforts over the years to rehab, to revitalize, to, you know, repair. Um, But we haven't seen many things as big and as long as what has happened in Eastlake. And we should note, listen, also, the Eastlake golf course was a pillar as well for all this. So not every community that needs to have this type of physical and and social redevelopment has a golf course at the core of this. So that's something to consider. Um, Listen, we should note that East Lake Meadows was replaced with the villages of East Lake, which included more than, I think, 500 townhouses and other units. There's Drew Charter School, which we'll get into, and then a family YMCA. But for our listeners also, Brett, because I know there are some terms that we're going to talk about, and I want you to go ahead and define them for our listeners. And the first one I want to talk about is what you all uh, define as a comprehensive community initiative as it relates to Eastlake. I think the simplest way to think about it is just a big and long-term effort to improve a very small place, Mm -hmm. a neighborhood, a big parcel of land, a development, Um, and also an effort that is multi-pronged. We're doing things for youth and for seniors. We're doing things on the health side. We're doing roads or parks or facilities. So it's throwing a lot of efforts at, uh, at a particular place. And we're going to dissect some of these key components because there were three that you all identified. I want to go ahead and let you just give a brief description of them, and then we'll come back. Let's talk about physical development of mixed-income housing community facilities and retail development. That's sort of self-explanatory, but if there's anything else you want to add to that. Yeah, just that at its time, mixed income housing was a pretty new concept. Now it's been rolled out lots of other places, but this effort, this program really was a a grandmother, a grandfather type exercise. Uh, And so it it was new at the time. And so there's a mix of public housing units, of subsidized units, of more market rate units that are came back into that same space. But then there also is a grocery store, uh, mm-hmm. Publix, and you know YMCA, and rehabbing of the golf facility itself. So a swimming pool, tennis mm-hmm. courts. So there's a lot of development that went in physical development. Another component component you all cited: cradle to college education. So the initiative has invested a lot of work uh, with young people, mm-hmm. uh, kids and, and youth. And a lot of that is centered through the Charles Drew Charter School, Atlanta Spurs. Um, and it's become a pretty high performing school in terms of test scores, in terms of high school graduation, in mm-hmm. terms of college going. Um, so that's kind of been an anchor or a linchpin, but there are other efforts too, including after school programming, like the rise program, mm-hmm. uh, previous effort called crew, uh, for teens, um, and, uh, the, the youth golf efforts have also been linked in to neighborhood. And then thirdly, you all cite community wellness supports. What's that about? So that's a mix of things like helping with resume writing and interviewing and career development and coaching and financial management, Um, supportive services, also health and wellness classes through the YMCA, uh, a mix of things to help people uh, get ahead. And for this report, you all use, and I'm going to quote you here, the synthetic control method. Dissect that for our listeners who are saying, Brett, what's that? What's it all about? Yeah, we don't have to get too in the weeds, but I'll just say what we want to do is not just look at what happened to Eastlake, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's unique. I mean, there's no other place that has exactly that mix of things. And simply looking at, uh, you know, how it went up and how it went down. uh, Well, you know, 
there was this thing called COVID, right? A lot of people lost jobs. A lot of people are, you know, the economy grew a lot in, in the previous years. And so we don't want to take everything that happens, you know, nationally and say, aha, that's an effect of Eastlake. That's because Eastlake, that's just not it. So we got to compare Eastlake against other places. And so that's simply what we're doing is we're looking at the differences in Eastlake relative to differences for other places. So someone listening says, well, Brett, can you take us through what methodology did you all use to evaluate these components? I imagine they were different. They weren't the same. You couldn't use the same metrics, or could you? So it's a great question, and it speaks to one of the limitations or the specific things that this study was able to do. What this study, study does not do is track outcomes for people. People move. Mm-hmm. Some people never came back to the neighborhood, mm-hmm. potentially three quarters of people who lived originally in the development. Uh, and so this study doesn't ask questions about how many of them saw their income go up or went to college or um, didn't get arrested or what have you. What the study does do is say, let's take a look at the neighborhood itself and let's see what happens to poverty Let's see what happens to home values. Let's see what happens to racial composition so we can understand what the effect is on the place. So really important questions about people uh, that are not answered here, but what the study does do is it it looks at the place. So uh, all that to say, this method doesn't get at the effect of the tutoring program Mm -hmm. or the youth you know, program per se, it takes a look at the whole bundle of activities as it affects a place. Well, let's start with the big one then, obviously, which is the poverty rate. What were you all able to determine? So we looked at a few of these big initiatives around the country. We looked at one in Baltimore called East Baltimore Development Inc. We looked at one in San Diego called the City Heights Initiative. So there's not many that are this big, but there are some across the country. Mm-hmm. And Eastlake stands apart as having a bigger effect than those other initiatives that we have studied. And there's a few reasons for that. Mm-hmm. But specifically um, with regards to poverty, we see a pretty sizable change. That is, we say that the initiative itself, based on this method, decreased poverty by almost 20 percentage points. Hmm. I noticed there was a section where you all said, and this was inflation adjusted for average household incomes for the East Lake target area increased from 42,000 in 1990 to 77,000 by 2015 through 2019. When you look at East Lake and these other communities, was this pretty much on target as well? Was this pretty much average or was East Lake unique in this regard? East Lake again stands apart as having had a bigger effect. And one thing I wanna make plain here is this is not necessarily saying the same people who lived there before, now 20% of them are less poor. It's saying we got a snapshot of neighborhood then and now. And so the poverty rate, the income decrease, the income increase, that could be because we've got different people living in the place as True. well. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Brett Theodos. He's a senior fellow at the Urban Institute. We're dissecting a report about Atlanta's East Lake neighborhood and what the outcomes for the area have been due to not just money, but some specific initiatives. Uh, I want to talk then about home values, because as you know, uh, <laughs> here, not just in the Atlanta area, but throughout the nation, um, home values and and Affordable housing, well, it's a it's a conversation that's that continues. When you you all cite this, homes in the East Lake community were worth an average of eighty five thousand dollars in nineteen ninety, and but you said constant dollars, and twenty fifteen to twenty nineteen three hundred and twelve thousand dollars. That's the difference there. But again, you're saying it may not be the same people, but this is the area. Well, I'll ask you this, Brett, and I think I know the answer to this. What has led to that? Eighty-five thousand yeah. to three hundred and twelve—that's a—that's a big jump. It's a big jump, and we can say, compared to other places, that the values went up by one hundred and seventy-five thousand because of the initiative. 
Um, and so the, the takeaway there is a couple fold. Mm -hmm. One, tearing down distressed public housing uh, and building back new mixed income housing grocery store. Why? And especially potentially high performing charter school with some boundary lines attached to it. Mm -hmm. That's going to make property values go up. But it's also worth contextualizing where that sits, right? Mm -hmm. It's near the golf course. Mm -hmm. It's near the game, right? So it's near other communities of affluence, um, as well as it's got some amenities itself. And so it's the initiative and it's the time period. And it's also where the initiative sits and all that bundled together uh, is what's making the difference. We know the importance of a neighborhood school to its community. You and I both know that you're a researcher, so you definitely know that. And when you look at Drew Charter School, and now, and I know for a fact that a lot of some folks are just moving into the neighborhood because they want their kids to go to Drew Charter. That's great. But then you look at why Drew Charter was initially developed anyway for the kids in that neighborhood. What did you all reveal? What does this report reveal about Drew Charter School specifically? And now they have a high school as well. Yeah. So it, it stands apart. I mean, other initiatives like the ones that we've looked at in Baltimore have not been able to launch their charter schools or, or their local schools in quite the same way. Uh, so something came together uh, in Eastlake that, that is different than we've seen elsewise. Um, and so we've got kids of homeowners that want to be in that school, but we've also got kids who still live in the subsidized units that are able to be in that school. So it's able to uh, retain uh, something of diversity at the same time as being a high-performing place. I want to stop for a moment and and shift because when you look at these other communities, and you mentioned Baltimore, you just said Baltimore is they have not or they're having challenges. What's the difference then there? Is it the public? private partnerships or funding, what's been their, their, their barrier there? Part of the challenge is whether you're swimming downstream or upstream. So Atlanta is, Atlanta's growing, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it, there's a lot of people moving to Atlanta, uh, a lot of investment coming into Atlanta. A lot of people want to be there. So improving a place when you're going with the tide is a lot different than a place Baltimore is shrinking. Uh, it's getting smaller every year. So you're saying and people don't want to move to Baltimore? I mean, uh, the city's shrinking. So uh, sure, some people come in, but more people go out. Um, so uh, it's a lot harder to make gains and attract investment and see a community make strides when the whole city is, is shrinking versus growing. Hmm. Let's talk a minute then about Tom Cousins' And in, in you and in that clip we played, Mayor Shirley, Shirley Franklin was mayor then, and there was a an effort. He had to get a lot of people to buy in. But when you have someone come in willing to put down three hundred million, that in itself, <laughs> you talk about how unique, you know, East Lake is. That in itself, you know, every community doesn't have that. But can you just briefly talk about the cousins and the approach of of wanting to be a part of this initiative? I mean, it really does map back to a single individual, um, which is on the one hand inspiring and on another hand problematic, right? Mm -hmm. That we have to rely on billionaires to be able to make progress in a particular neighborhood. Well, but if that. nobody else was doing it, I mean, right? nobody else was coming only, to the table. Yeah, totally. There's just only so many billionaires and there's a lot of communities. God. <laughs> <laughs> I don't yeah. know <laughs> There's a lot of billionaires. <laughs> That's true. Even if Some you just have a handful, they got a lot of money. Let's be clear yeah. about that. So, Yep, they sure do. I'll let you finish. Go uh, ahead. Yeah, yeah. No. So, uh, so San Diego is another one of these. Saul Price, who invented Price Smart, right? And this was the predecessor. This is who Sam Walton ripped off to create Walmart, right? So um, did another one of these initiatives. Um, so billionaires can change the world, right? And, and they do, especially when they decide they want to focus. And if they want to focus on a particular neighborhood and really put their money there, it can make a difference. Before we wrap up, I want to give you an opportunity to take further for our listeners, too. When we talk about this community wellness support, what does your report reveal about this initiative? So uh, what it takes away as an as a overall look 
um, is you know that we need both physical and human supports to try to uh, make progress in place. We need to be mindful of who we're helping and how we help people uh, who are longtime residents um, stay or return to initiatives, as well as how we how we help um, those who are new. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, we all need uh, help in multiple directions. And so that's what in- initiatives uh, are part of as well. Let me ask you this, Brett. How do you define gentrification? Yeah, it's a great question. Look at that smile. You're ready to answer that, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I am. Uh, I would say it's real estate appreciation uh, coupled with change in not just economics, but something more on the social side of things. And that also often means race. Mm-hmm. If you all were to come back, maybe and do another assessment, say from, I don't know, 2015 to maybe 2025, that zip code, that East Lake zip code, that 30317, I believe, it is a hot zip code. It is now and has been for some years a, a highly sought after area for housing. But then when you throw in that G word, gentrification, and you look at displacement, uh, perhaps maybe intentional or not, the exclusion of black and brown and, and low wage earner communities, low income folks. You don't want to say, oh, it was bad what happened to East Lake, but is it fair to say this is a consequence of something like the East Lake model, which is a great model. I don't want folks sending me an email saying, I, you, I'm not saying East Lake's not a great model. It's a wonderful model. It's a unique model. I think it's important to hold a couple things in tension here as we're thinking about replication, right? East Lake is done. I mean, the initiative's not done. They're still providing supports, but the relocation is done. Um but when I think about other initiatives and where they're coming across the country, I think it's important to put a couple things forward. One, can you keep people in place mm-hmm. while you're doing the rebuild? Uh, you know, yeah, you need to move out of this building, but you could stay in the neighborhood and move next door. So that kind of build first approach that means that fewer people scatter and never return uh, is, I'd say, something that, you know, it's been over 25 years, right? But Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot more growing understanding of the importance of keeping people nearby um, so that they have the ability to stay and benefit from a neighborhood improving. Who should read this report about East Lake? I'm hoping that folks in city governments and public housing authorities and their partners in philanthropy the, the billionaires, as well as the more traditional, you know, philanthropies, um, as well as the affordable housing developers, um, will all be willing to take a look and think about what it takes. And I would say, uh, you know, top two lessons is one, you're going to have to stick around with a lot of money for a while mm-hmm. if you want to make change. And two, be really intentional. If you're uh, if your initiative takes off and has success, even beyond what you might have imagined, how are you going to hold on to some land and hold on to the original residents so they can benefit as well? Ah, those are some magic questions. Brett Theodos is a senior fellow at the Urban Institute. We'll have a link to your report on our website about East Lake. Brett, good conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. You as well. Take care. All right now. And Closer Look continues from WABE. We're in Atlanta, amplifying Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. This week, state lawmakers finally started to fill in some details regarding measures that they've been all discussing. Now, one of the most powerful legislators at the Capitol introduced a bill that would overhaul, overhaul how Georgia provides mental health services. This is a measure likely headed to Governor Kemp's desk for approval because it has bipartisan support. We also learned a bit more just what lawmakers mean when they talk about critical race theory. We'll talk about that. There's no evidence the academic framework is taught in K through 12 schools, but some of them are worried about it. And that's not stopping some Georgia Republicans from trying to pass legislation to ban it. 
Lots to get to. Let's bring in the dynamic duo, WAB's political reporting team, Raul Bally and Sam Greenglass. They can determine which one is Batman, which one is Robin. They can both be Batman. They can both be Robin. I don't want to get into that. Welcome, fellas. Hi, Rose. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. I have always considered myself more of a Joker than I do a Batman or a Robin. So, why do you want to be the villain, Raul? <laughs> of course, I do. I kind of saw you also come. Maybe you could be, I don't know, Aquaman. I don't know. <laughs> There's one superhero who's a journalist, right? Technically, it, yes. That's Superman? Superman? Yes. Yeah. Yes. He's on the tech beat, I believe. Um, <laughs> Let's start here. Um, some very serious, uh, serious measure because that big package of mental health legislation that's being spearheaded by Georgia House Speaker David Ralston. I'm going to play a clip because here he is talking about the bill earlier this week. There is no issue this session more important to me than this issue. I am tired of telling desperate and hurting families that we have no treatment options available in Georgia. I am tired of looking in the faces of mothers who have lost a child because they saw no hope. And I'm tired of seeing the faces of those whose spiral downward has been fed by substance abuse. Georgia is a great state. Passage of this landmark bill will also mean we are a good state. You know, it's very rare that the speaker will introduce a bill, but Raul, how big of a deal is this? And and take it further, what's in this package? You know, we in the media have the habit of using major, massive, game-changing, sweeping. We, We use being at that event and then reading the bill. That language is absolutely justified with this bill. Let's talk about the most important thing in this bill. It's the idea of parity, Mm -hmm. that mental health insurance coverage should be equal as physical coverage by health insurance. For example, you know, if a cancer treatment calls for this many rounds of chemo, then it's covered. If a mental health issue demands a certain level of treatment, that is covered too. That's been a challenge for some people who are trying to get that kind of coverage. But there are so many other issues that are that are mm-hmm. covered in this. We talk about providers. Mm-hmm. There's a forgivable loan program for, to create more providers, creating a network of mental health response teams that include both police officers and mental health professionals. Changes within the state government about who handles, for example, complaints, data, reviews, mm-hmm. enforcement. Um, and, and then one more thing, and you heard the speaker mention, and I think it's important to point out that while everyone's talking about mental health, there's a significant portion of this bill that deals with substance abuse and addiction. Not heard a lot of coverage in the media, but that is a very, very key part of this legislation as well. And Raul, we should note this measure has a number of Democratic co-sponsors. That and the fact that it's Ralston's bill, does it make it pretty certain that this will pass in some form? Or is there any pushback from any lawmakers about any any provisions in this measure that you're hearing? It's not as much pushback. It's, hey, should this be included in the bill or should that be included in the bill? But yes, it is very clear that this is a priority by both sides. There are a lot of players, mental health advocates, substance abuse advocates, child advocates. Law enforcement is really going to get involved in this and along multiple state agencies. So I don't think it's going to be as much pushback. I mean, Mm -hmm. you may get some pushback from like insurance companies, for example, but it's going to be a lot of People saying this should or should not be in the final bill. I think that's what we're going to see a lot of. And Sam, you talked with mental health service providers this week as this was being introduced. What are you hearing? What'd you hear? So I talked with the leaders of two providers that treat kids and teens uh, here in Atlanta, and they both talked about how hopeful they're feeling right now, like for the first time in maybe a long time. Uh, One provider, her name is Emily Acker at Hillside, and she said this work, especially over the pandemic, has often felt like an uphill climb where you're 
just struggling to get anywhere. And now the promise of some change feels real. And she said it feels like a breath of fresh air, actually. Um, another provider, Kathy Colbinson, who runs Chris 180, mm -hmm. uh, she told me how just wrenching it can be to know that treatment is out there, but some kids just can't access it. And sometimes it ends up being too late as they're struggling through that process to afford the care that they need. Um, to get to your second question, I mean, this is a massive overhaul, as Raul talked about. But Georgia is starting from a pretty weak position. I think the state ranks among the worst when it comes to access to care mm -hmm. and overall mental health in the country. And so the providers I'm talking to say that this bill is a really important start, but there's still going to be a lot more to do, even if it's passed. Either one of you, is there a financial component to this? Is there a cost? Is there What's the budget? Or is that even an issue here? It is. So what we do know is some of the things that are in this package, we're already in the funding package coming from Governor Kemp. So some of the things in here are funded. There are probably gonna be other things that need to be funded. We do not have a final number, mainly because the bill was just filed this mm -hmm. week, they're going through it. There are also a number of places in the bill that it says if appropriations are available uh, or are needed. So we don't have a final number, but, you know, in an era where there is significant money in the budget to work with, I think many of the things and Speaker Ralston said it during his big press conference uh, inside the state capitol. He said they're going to find the money. The money is available to be found and and, and, and funding as many of those priorities as mm -hmm. they can. And you could see funding for other things down the road. For example, those response teams have not been put together yet. The ones with mental health professionals and officers. That's something that can be funded down the road as those are put together. So I think the money is going to be there and I think they're going to make a priority. Uh, the budget writer is going to make a priority to put money as much as they can into this. Well, we're going to move from a bipartisan supported bill to one that is not. This week, we heard a bit more about what some lawmakers mean when they invoke critical race theory. Uh, here's Republican State Senator Bo Hatchett. The bottom line is this. We must ensure that no student is taught to feel guilty or less than because of how they were born. Scapegoating and stereotyping are not acceptable teaching methods, period. We've said again and again on this program, critical race theory, which is an advanced academic theory, is not taught in public schools in Georgia. However, uh, what are lawmakers getting at here? Either one of you can take that. So there's been a couple bills that have tried to address this subject already. So I'm going to talk about what they're attempting to define in this one bill introduced by Senator Hatchett, who you just played tape from. Um, and what they're hanging on to is a term called divisive concepts. Mm -hmm. And in this bill, they try and outline exactly what they mean by that. Um, they lay out a bunch of examples. It covers like maybe two pages of the bill. Um, one the US or Georgia is fundamentally or systemically racist. That would be one example of a divisive concept or teaching that someone is inherently oppressive because of their race. Um, not clear that those things are even being taught in K through 12 schools right now either. Uh, but one thing that surprised me is they're trying to put this not just in K through 12 schools, but also colleges too and technical schools, um, which is something I was not expecting uh, when I opened up this bill. Sam, does the bill give any example? Are you talking about, so if there's a textbook, there shouldn't be a class, what do they want? So it doesn't talk about textbooks or classes specifically. It talks about curriculum or teaching concepts. Um, it tries to wade into what this could look like tangibly a little bit. Um, they're saying what it it's not intended to do as well. So for example, they said this should not be construed to think that you cannot teach about Jim Crow or that you cannot teach about slavery and that those were oppressive systems. Um, so there's a lot of wiggle room here about what this means. It addresses what happens if a kid raises a question about one of these things. How does a teacher respond? Um, it says that that teacher can respond, but they shouldn't endorse one of these divisive concepts. Uh, and they have to talk about it in a balanced way. So still a lot of ambiguity, even within what tries to be a very specific definition of what a divisive concept is. Hmm. Balance as it relates to racism? I mean, again, 
Question mark. Uh, you could see a world in which parents raise a complaint, a teacher disagrees that it falls under this policy as laid out in the bill, then it has to go through a complaint process that starts with the principal, could end up at this, the local school board, and then can be appealed all the way up to the state school board, which might withhold state funding for schools. So there's kind of an adjudication process here and lots of avenues for trying to sort out what exactly is okay under the policy and what exactly is not. The voice here is Sam Greenglass. I'm also joined by Raul Bally. They're our WAB politics reporter, and we're talking about what's been happening this week at the Georgia legislature. So there was this legislation introduced that gets at the issue of how schools talk about race. Is that different from the one we just talked about, or are these two separate measures? There's a lot going on, Sam. So there have been a couple of different bills that try to address this idea of critical race theory or more specifically just how race is taught in the classroom overall. There have also been bills about obscene materials in classrooms, and that's where you're talking about materials online, uh, books in libraries. And these aren't specific lists of books that are to be banned, but it kind of lays out a process for how parents uh, who want to be the drivers in their kids' education can raise a complaint about a a specific book or material being taught uh, or available in a library. So again, we're seeing a theme here of Republicans pushing bills that try and increase the role that parents have to file complaints about the materials being taught in schools. You know, and, I and I, what, go ahead, Ro. And what I'm looking for in terms of legislation that's still to come is is a is almost standards, kind of looking at what is age appropriate for age this, age this, that grade, this grade. Um, whether it's materials in class, whether it's, for example, sex ed material. So that's something that I'm also watching for. That's a bill that I still, uh, being told by lawmakers, is still in the works, uh, along with what he's ta- what Sam's talking about, which is Senate Bill 226. Hmm. I hope they don't bother Edgar Allan Poe. I like that. Speaking of schools, uh, Sam, I want to go back to you for a moment. There was some news this week about the school board for the largest district in the state. We're talking about Gwinnett County here. There's a bill that will make the board nonpartisan. Let's talk about that for a moment. How's it being received? Yeah, so school is clearly a big theme of this week and this legislative session, and I don't think that's going to go away as we get into the campaign over the coming months. Um, But just to talk about Gwinnett, um, so I watched the public comments uh, about this issue in one of the committees this week, and it's this issue that seems kind of wonky, right? Like, Mm -hmm. but people are really fired up about it, and let me tell you why. Um, So people want to make the board nonpartisan. And they say it's because there's too much politics on the school board and it's getting in the way of kids' education. Uh, One commenter, uh, a parent of kids in the school system said she doesn't like how things have been changing in Gwinnett County. Um, So for some background, uh, Democrats took control of the board in the last elections and opponents of making this change say, hey, wait a second, this isn't about getting rid of politics. It's these coded complaints about Gwinnett's fast changing demographics. Um, Nonpartisan elections happen in May, uh, not November. And opponents of the change say that this is a lower turnout election. It could give people a chance with priorities like the kind of education bills that we've just been talking about from sweeping into office. People who support these conservative policies, but on paper would come off as nonpartisan. So I guess, Rose, this is a debate over a local school board, but it also says a lot about some of the bigger debates that are playing out about schools, about race, about demographics, and about representation. Absolutely. Let me and 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 Rose, let me tell you something that's sure. not going to happen this session. The whole conversation of making all school boards elections in Georgia nonpartisan, mm-hmm. that is not going to happen. And here's why. Both Republicans and Democrats have basically told me my constituents are happy with our Republican school board or our Democratic school board. So the idea, and by the way, we have 180 school boards in Georgia, 109 have partisan elections, 71 have partisan elections. Mm-hmm. That's just not going to change. In the end, what's happening at the legislature is really just going to focus on Gwinnett. Now, we couldn't have a segment with you two without mentioning the C word, cityhood. <laughs> <laughs> what's the latest on the various cityhood movements? So in terms of what's happened this week at the legislature, East Cobb, um, 
has gone has passed the state house mm-hmm. and is already is moving over to the state senate that did get through uh, you did have some republicans democrats cross the line either for or against a lot of different uh, uh points that were brought up first of all for those who don't know there are four cityhood movements in cobb that cobb is dealing with along with east cobb they're dealing with lost mountain mableton um also dealing with vinings those probably lead more democratic than east cobb does that's probably one of the reasons why long you know you have some democratic lawmakers saying these four should be done together just to be fair to the four and to be fair to cobb county because Cobb County is trying to juggle, you know, 10 things at the same time. Mm-hmm. What do those elections look like? Is it everybody's an at-large seat on the city council or not? And then when did the actual elections happen? Should the elections, should the referendum happen in May mm-hmm. and then you elect the new city leaders in November? Or do you do it in November and then have to do a special election to elect the new city leaders? All of these balls are being juggled in the air when it comes to to at least those movements and Cobb that are trying to move forward. Well, Raul, let me ask you this through your lens, though. How is it likely that the other two, the other three could get some movement or just maybe right now we're looking at the city of East Cobb? Right now we're just looking at the city of East Cobb. I honestly have not had the discussions with those Cobb lawmakers to see where those other three cities are, are where they stand in the process. Do they expect them to get to vote? Now, those mo- those do some of those do have Republican and Democratic supporters. But at this moment, I haven't checked in to see how those other three cop movements are doing. Sam, let me come back to you for a moment. Um, some other big news this week. Anything that you want to let our listeners know that you paid attention to? So we've talked all session long about bills related to voting and elections and whether those issues actually animate voters. Um This has come up, you know, when President Biden and Democrats shifted their attention to pushing federal voting rights. Um, Democrats in the state house this week introduced a bill to overturn the sweeping election law passed here last year. Republicans have pushed new voting laws. And this week, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution came out with a poll that showed elections and voting was the number one issue Mm -hmm. facing Georgians today. Not the economy, not the pandemic, not crime, voting and elections. And to me, that was shocking. And I'm really interested to see how that plays out over as we head into the next couple of months. Well, let's uh, focus a little bit on next week. Sam, I'll stay with you. What are you going to be watching for next week and why? Um, So on Monday, Governor Kemp is visiting a school and is going to meet with teachers. Uh, I'm curious to hear more about where his head's at on some of these education bills that we've been talking about. Um, We're still waiting to learn more about permitless carry, and I'm interested to see how this mental health bill starts working its way through the legislature. Raul? Uh, as I mentioned, as I mentioned, there's that bill uh, that that's working on standards for materials in school. Hearing that possibly could be dropping in the next week or two. Watching for that. I had an interesting conversation with a lawmaker yesterday talking about gambling legislation, and that lawmakers are are really trying to get around what uh, Speaker Ralston was talking about—the idea of just put everything on the ballot, all gambling on the ballot, put it on the ballot let Georgians vote on it, and then let lawmakers figure out what that looks like down the road. And then finally, an interesting bill, a bill that, I, that, that I'm going to be watching that I expect will get a hearing. Most people know about Georgia's hand free, hands-free law when you're driving mm-hmm. uh, your car. Uh, State Senator Frank Guinness filed a bill that if you're at a stoplight or you're at a stop sign, you can grab your phone for a second. And then, of course, when you start moving, you got to put the phone back. So that bill is also expected to get a hearing. So I will be watching for that as well. And, uh, you know, our, our producers here, they are top of the line. Um, bro, what's up with the, you and some possum news? <laughs> Thank you for asking, Rose. I or, or Sam or t- what 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 you talking about? Won't be. So for those who follow me on Twitter, you know, I'm always posting about serious bills, serious things going at the at the Capitol. But I do if if I see something funny or something interesting, I, I will tweet that. There is a bipartisan bill filed this week to make the possum the official state marsupial of the state of Georgia, and uh, you, you could imagine on, on Twitter, you know, it it, it people had a, a field day. I think Samantha B retweeted it which really got it a lot of traction but i i try to if i see something interesting i post it and that's what happened with possums 
Raul, who introduced this measure? Uh, a state representative. Oh, God, I need to look it up. Uh, okay. I believe it was uh, Tyler Paul Smith um, mm-hmm. who filed it. But again, it's bipartisan. Uh, Democrat uh, Al Williams, I believe, is on the bill, too. Now, what about folks that like, uh, I don't know, wombats? Aren't they marsupials? <laughs> I'm a big wombat I, fan, you know. I mean, I, I don't know. If, are there, don't are there know. wombats in Georgia? I don't know. They're not, right? They live where? Someone will send me an email. Are possums <laughs> the only marsupial in Georgia, and they're going to be our state marsupial? Well, I know there are no uh, kangaroos that... Kangaroos <laughs> running around okie-finokie, so I'm sure there are no, uh, what, uh, Tasmanian devils? There, there are none. I, maybe. Well, I guess. Well, of course. If we only have one marsupial, then apparently it is the possum. But I would like to know about the wombat because I'd like to be a voice for the we're amplifying Atlanta. We might as well amplify wombats. So so I can if you want me to, I will drop off the lobbyist application for you at the station <laughs> and you can come down and lobby. For the wombats. Somebody's got to be a voice for the wombats. It might as well be Rose Scott. Why not? Sam Greenglass, Raul Bally. They cover politics for WABE. And apparently Raul is on the <laughs> possum bill. <laughs> My understanding is the uh, the bill signing will be done in the middle of the road. So Ah, uh, isn't there a song about a dead possum in the middle of the road or dead raccoon or dead skunk or something dennis o'hara knows that song I will. <laughs> thank you both for taking the time it's definitely a friday we appreciate you keeping our listeners informed they really appreciate this these segments not sure about the last three minutes but that's my fault so thank you guys thank you great weekend everybody That's it for this edition of Closer Look, probably. Our senior producer is Sam Whitehead, Janine Edder, LaShawn Hudson, and Danielle Razel are our other producers. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. He rides a bike, and I can tell you he has never hit a possum or a wombat, maybe some squirrels. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's show, you can find the entire program online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. We've got a brand new website. It's way cool. And you can check out Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. and in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. By the way, let me know what you think of our website. It's pretty cool. I like it. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories, is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. WABE. The world has changed, from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E.